Welcome to Food Love. This is your host, Rafina Garai. This is part two of the interview with Francis Tappan, who is the author of Hike Your Own Hike and is the podcast host of Wander Learn. Travel is the best university for him. And we are good friends from Amherst College and um, caught up in over two hours and maybe 43 minutes or so. So with that said, here's part two. Thanks for listening. I want to, I want to switch the conversation a little bit to talk about sure. the more controversial topic, which is hunting. So uh, yeah, for those who haven't heard my podcast, there's a podcast where I interview, it's actually my most popular and most downloaded episode. It's one where I interview Brittany Longoria. So you just search for Brittany Longoria and, or leopard uh, hunter, and you'll find that episode. And to briefly summarize, this is a woman who killed a leopard, hunted a leopard in Namibia. She legally paid $45,000 or so to hunt and kill this leopard. And she got her photo effectively stolen from her, her where she's holding mm -hmm. up the le leopard. And she got a lot of flack because that photo of her holding up the leopard on social media, and a lot of people went after her and just utterly insulted her in every possible way that you can imagine. And mm -hmm. I interviewed her and I highly encourage anybody who's listening to this podcast to listen to that podcast. And then later on, Rejoice and I debated it after in a separate podcast after that. But here's my question. You got a chance to listen to that podcast. What is your take mm -hmm. on hunting? I, I think there's so much merit in, in what Brittany says about wanting to tell her story of her experience as a huntress. I, I do think it is sort of a male-dominated activity in our country and maybe defies like expectations about gender roles and stereotypes. So I think she's got an important story to tell. And for that, like I have a lot of respect. I grew up in a household where my father was both a hunter and a fisherman and I think he hoped that his children would follow in his footsteps. And we all kind of became fisher people. But hunting was sort of this thing that I couldn't wrap my brain or my heart or my spirit around, I guess. There is a need to, I, what I love about, okay, so let me rewind. What I love about people who hunt with respect for the animals that they hunt is, is that they're doing the dirty work that we don't do on a daily basis if we're eating meat and purchasing it from a grocery store. So on that level, I think hunting is more sort of a genuine connection to the loss of life that happens for our benefit. And my own father was really in tune with nature, really loved animals and birds. And his uh, relationship to hunting came out of his experience in a third world country, having to hunt for food for, you know, sustaining a family, his, his siblings and parents. But even he drew the line in certain places. Like growing up, one of the stories in our household uh, was of his experience hunting monkeys because monkeys can be a delicacy. I think people eat the brains of monkeys as well for protein, right? And my father's own experience with with hunting monkeys was shooting this larger monkey in the in the forest for food um, for a troop of hunters, and then coming upon like why this monkey was holding on so tightly to this branch 
And when they got closer to it, they realized the monkey was holding a baby monkey and both had perished in, in the shooting. And my father never hunted monkeys again. And, and it was because he realized how human that animal really is. And I think there are moments of recognition when we can see our connection to animals. And I guess this is one of the reasons why I say I will be vegan at some point. Uh, but in the meantime, you know, I try to eat meat with a certain level of reverence that I think hunters who really understand what the hunt is about and, and hunters who use the food to eat as opposed to game sport, that, that there's a big distinction for me in that. And, you know, I guess if you're talking about the morality of hunting, you have to also question the morality of mass producing beef in ways that are inconsistent with the natural laws of nature, right? My most recent podcast is about regenerative farming uh, with Will Harris of White Oak Pastures. And he really kind of helps people walk through how they can farm sustainably um, and how they can kind of treat the animals with a certain level of respect for their needs um, to avoid the general stresses that come with what we have currently in the in, you know large-scale beef industry. So I do care about people having an understanding of all the different ways in which we relate to our food. So I think it's important for her to keep talking about her story and for people to think critically about whether they agree or disagree with what she's doing. I, I do think like your comment about ego and how much ego is wrapped up in these trophy poses, right? I think there's something to be said about that. Glorifying the kill to me is not something that I'm necessarily in favor of. You know, I think to honor the animal would be to take the time to eat the food with a level of reverence and appreciation for the sacrifice made. So I feel that way about it, but I'm I'm not in a place to judge anybody else who needs a certain level of, or has a certain level of attachment to the notches in the belt, I guess, about which thing they've killed most recently. And I'm not so sure. I haven't followed her on Instagram, so I don't really know if if there is anything like that for her. So I can't really comment too far about that. Yeah, she has changed her... Instagram images in accordance to some of the feedback she's gotten and, and has decided to take a more a kind of a reverence in her photos mm. to kind of show respect to the animal and that kind of stuff. There's one uh, minor mm. disagreement I would have with you when you said either the difference between hunters who hunt for meat versus those who hunt for trophies. Uh, there's, there's I, not to my knowledge, I'm sure they exist, but in general, it's exceedingly rare that a hunter will kill an animal and not have the meat consumed. In other words, just to discard the meat 100%. They personally yeah. might not eat the meat, personally mm -hmm. in some cases, but they mm -hmm. will mm -hmm. usually donate it to the local villagers or whoever yeah. lives nearby. So the meat, whether it's a giraffe, a hippopotamus, an elephant, a tiger, a lion, all that meat even though you and I may not eat it and you won't buy it at a grocery store, it's, according to lots of people, buffalo meat tastes great. And, and mm -hmm. this is, so this notion that I think a lot of amateurs have, or just people who don't know hunting very well, they think that we just kill meat and just let it sit there and die or just grab the head and stick the trophy on our wall and that's it. So there's that, I just want to clarify that. Yeah, I, and I heard that in that podcast mm -hmm. and I'd say that, 
I, I think that the, for me, in my mind, part of the thing that concerns me still is that there are poachers out there who consider themselves hunters. Oh, right. And some of them are definitely wasting the yes, meat, um, even in the Pacific absolutely Northwest. Right. Absolutely right. We see people taking like the seal skins and leaving the flesh. Absolutely. And, and, seal yeah. and they'll do that be... with elephants and their tusks. Yeah. They'll just kill the elephant right. and just take the tusks and leave the elephant body to rot. Yeah. Um, if you right. want to be as, you know, Again, trying to defend hunters. That's the funny thing is here I'm a vegan. I'm defending hunters all the time. <laughs> but trying to defend them is is in the sense that it's, again, not as if the food is going to waste. In other words, there's a right. ton of right. scavengers who come in and de- devour sure. the elephant. Yes. And you're feeding the vultures, the hyenas, the whoever else, that then the microbes and the and the other sure. rodents that come and devour whatever there. So nothing is getting wasted in nature in that sense. Right. Yeah. But, but human beings are not eating that meat for sure. Uh, that's that's mm-hmm. certain. But here's the thing is I think that, well, let me ask you first this. What do you think about, there's many different terms for it, lab-grown meat or clean meat or that kind of mm. stuff. What is your take on that phenomenon? For those who don't know, they're kind of, using animal cultures, uh, sorry, animal biology and basically reproducing it into a lab so that you can have a hamburger without ever having to actually grow a cow in order to make the hamburger. Yeah. So it tastes identical to a hamburger. Right now they're very expensive. A hamburger cost that's lab grown is cost over a thousand dollars. So it's prohibitively expensive, but they're working on technology to bring that down. And do you, do you bristle at the idea of having lab grown meat on your plate? Yeah, I do. I do bristle at it. I I would, you know, I guess part of it is I I spent time as a corporate biotech attorney, um, you know, learning about different technology and, you know, sometimes the unintended consequences of things, particularly in the area of science. And, you know, probably the people I used to work with would really (laughs) think that I've gone off the deep end. But why, why try to make something as good as nature can make it? Right. Why are we following that purpose exactly, except that we think we need to have a hamburger, right? If you're interested in, I mean, I think you could just be vegan if you're worried about animal treatment, right? Like you just make a different kind of commitment as opposed to focusing on this purpose of of making a sort of humane, cruelty-free meat product. Because at the end of the day, you know, the natural design of, of food gives it the the nutrients because those animals have innate intelligence in terms of what to eat. So if we were not to talk about meat, we would talk about salmon. I have a podcast where Jessica Plum, who is the producer of Return of the River, talks about salmon forests and how things are shifting in the salmon population with their size and things like that because it's being overfished. And that that salmon, you know, swims upstream and the, the bears eat it and then they disperse the, the salmon carcasses because they used to just take the bellies when they were very large and eat them. And then y- you can look at the, the makeup of the, the forest and find the compounds that are directly from salmon in the trees. And to me, that's a remarkable thing that there's sort of a, a natural cycle of nutrition happening in our ecosystems that, you know, until I had that conversation with Jessica, I did not even know about. And to think that we have almost that, um, I don't know, universal, you know, intelligence 
to try and encapsulate it in a synthesized product, I think we can always kind of approach that. It's it's like having a parabola, right? You can approach it, but you're never going to quite get it exactly right. And, And so I would say that you might get something you can eat calorically. You might get something that will have some nutritional value, but will it be as good for you as the natural product? I think not. I, and, I, and I don't know what the cascade of response in the body will be, be because like even at a genetic level, right, we have the, the same amino acids we share in common, right? Like the building blocks of our muscle come from these proteins that we're ingesting. So when you tell me you're giving me a synthesized product, what I know is that my body may not know what to do with that because it's not naturally found, right? Like we were hunters and gatherers first. So I guess that, that would be my, my take on it. It's maybe conservative, but, but I just, I guess that's the intuitive part of preferring to move towards the simplicity of things, right? To, to go and forage the berries out of the forest, if I can, as opposed to moving towards synthesized foods, processed foods. There's been some books written about the chemistry of cooking. I'm sure you've read mm. some of them, haven't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of my favorite is Harold McGee's on cooking. Okay, I don't. I haven't, I haven't read any. I just know that this is a thing. There's a science to cooking. Yeah. I mean, literally down yes. to the chemistry level. And they talk mm-hmm. about temperature and, and cells and everything. I mean, just like it's amazing the level of detail that they go into. But my point is, is that ultimately a piece of meat or fruit or whatever is a collection of atoms. And it's a scaffold- mm-hmm put together that create a cell and that cells put together in a certain way and a combination of proteins and fat and uh, carbohydrates that all conglomerate into making whatever food that we ingest. So mm-hmm. ultimately the building blocks are, you know, these cells are, and, and atoms. So mm-hmm. my question is, is if we are able to just reproduce it, we have, let's say nanotechnology that we can mm. repro- by block by block and reproduce block by block, whether it be a banana or whether it be a piece of cow or pork, why would that be any different or bad for you, any worse or any different in any Mm -hmm. kind of way than eating a Mm -hmm. quote-unquote natural uh, Mm -hmm. banana or, or pig? Yeah. So I, you know, my intuition tells me, so this isn't very helpful because I don't have any research on this, but I think it reminds me of, you know, how, how people endeavor to clone the sheep. Was it, was it Dolly? I can't remember the name of the sheep. And that cloning process resulted in, you know, a live animal that had weakness, right? It It didn't have a level of integrity in it. And I think that's one of those things where, you know, I guess in some ways it's like talking about inductive versus deductive reasoning, like building the blocks together and trying to make them fit is different than having something come out whole, right, in the birthing process and innately having the coding. Like I, I kind of think of our genetics as like the computer coding for the supercomputer of our our, our brains and our bodies. And that that's sort of a natural intelligence within each of our bodies, right? Like but your but your son didn't come out whole. I mean, in other words, he was a building blocks. It was a sperm and an egg that got together and started building and building and building. And all of a sudden, given nine months, 
And he, I mean, he's still changing every single day. He's shedding. Yeah, he's and evolving. He's evolving every single sure. day. You and I are. We have a, yeah. a new liver every nine months or whatever it is. So, right. Um, so what, why can't we just reproduce that code, if you will? Why can't we just, yeah. what's, what's wrong well, with that? I think we that? can. Okay. I don't, I, so, so for me, I don't, I don't think that there's anything wrong with it to each his own or her own, right? Or their own, but I don't want to eat it, mm. right? Because, because I'm somewhat suspect, right? If I know that processed foods over time historically have not been so beneficial for the body, that the body hasn't known what to do with certain things. Like even if we just take the example of hydrogenated fats, the body just doesn't know how to cope with certain things or eliminate certain things from the body as easily. And so until, you know, I'm convinced that this is exactly the same thing, right? Which I don't think it can be. I think it's the parabola situation. So you you would, is there any evidence that can make you convinced that it is the same thing? What would, what would you have to learn for you to say, Give me one of those artificial lab-grown, clean meat, whatever, burgers, and I'll have one. You'd, you'd have to be able to produce the steer <laughs> from, from the lab for me to believe it. And the, the, the steer would have to have the integrity, mm. you know, not a dolly. Because, I, like, look, if we think about the body, right, like every cell has, like, mitochondria that is functioning to create. That, that's mm. the powerhouse of the cell, mm. And those things, you know, amass in the structure of the body to to create our emotion, to create like all the things that happen in the body. Okay. And the the food on the plate, when it comes from the lab, doesn't have that architecture behind it, right? Okay, so hold on. Another thought experiment then, uh, Rufina. Your son, somehow his liver completely fails, utterly fails, Mm -hmm. and he's going to die in, I don't know, a month. So mm-hmm. you have an opportunity. This is a horrible question, Francis. I'm it's a, a master horrible at question. horrible questions. This is my job. It's a horrible I just, question. I, I should word. refuse to answer it. <laughs> did, did, you ask, like, okay. did you hear what Pick I asked? Pick a different person. Do you remember I, I asked uh, Brittany Longoria, I asked her, what if I could, you know, like we could kill your father? <laughs> remember I asked her that question? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So, yes. Do you remember asking, when I said, oh. Francis, do you remember when I said no spikes? I just want to oh. name this moment. As a spike, Francis. <laughs> it's a spike. It's a spike. Okay. All right. So imagine that I'm dying <laughs> and I've okay. got a liver missing okay. liver. <laughs> okay. And, I would definitely um, work at finding you a liver. <laughs> okay. But and then there's a place, and, and let's say there's no natural livers available, but there's a technology for only five thousand bucks. You mm-hmm. can buy a lab grown liver. Mm-hmm. And well, in that case, why not? Okay, so in that case, why not? And and it, because it, it's a it's a one time shot, and it's a better answer than the alternative options. And mm-hmm. without it, you could not sustain life. So, so in that case, yes. But when you're talking about the um, kind of prolonged ingestion of a, a food product that may or may not be providing you with the nutrients you're expecting, right? Because because it's people are giving equivalencies to these things that you know this lab ground meat has the equivalency of anything sort of sourced naturally from the steer, right? I think that's where we come off being duped because I would like to see more research done, right? In terms of 
what happens to people who are anemic, who are consuming like natural steaks with the B12s, totally bioavailable from that versus anemics who are eating the the laboratory meat? Like, can they get the same nutrition over time? Like what's really happening in the body? Is it the same thing? Is it really equivalent? And if if you put it out into the market and you say, well, it's good, but it's not really equivalent. And these are the things you might be missing. Then I'm okay with it because then it's, you know, buyer beware. You're responsible for your own body and your own health. Can I ask you a non, a seemingly non sequitur question? Sure. So did your husband, when he proposed to you, did he give you a diamond ring? Oh, so... No, because okay. we decided we didn't want to be married. We're partners. Oh, okay, okay. Shh, shh, shh. Well, yeah, we were both divorced. <laughs> okay, okay. And happily divorced. Okay, okay, okay. And I mean, I guess you could consider it more conscious. We're conscious objectors. Okay, <laughs> fine, fine. Okay, that's level. fine. Um, so, <laughs> and no, I I have diamonds. Like you know, I think I probably have my old engagement ring from my previous. Wedding, okay. and I don't want them okay. anymore. No, but I was what I was going to yeah. say is that I've asked this question sometimes to women that if their future, their fiance gave them a diamond ring that was sorry a zirconian diamond ring, would they be offended? In other words, would you rather have let's say an extra ten thousand dollars in the bank and a cubic zirconian, which is for all intents and purposes is identical to the diamond that you would have gotten? That cost ten thousand dollars, or would you rather have you know the 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 diamond itself and be ten thousand dollars poor? Yeah, so I'm the wrong person to ask that question of Francis yeah, yeah, because so. I've never been a girly girl. That's why okay. I was playing volleyball with the men's team, right? right? <laughs> <laughs> and then I guess the second thing, like I I stopped wearing jewelry. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I maybe I wear it occasionally, but and then I saw Blood Diamond. Oh, right, right. Have you seen Blood Diamond? Yes, I have. So, so like once you see Blood Diamond, you're like, why would I be supporting the De Beers? And why would I <laughs> invest in this when yeah. there's a lot of like really inherent problematic mm. things around the whole industry? Right, right, right. Okay. So, so you, so you, so would, that's, you that's where I sit on that. I'm the wrong person. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I okay, would take fair. the Zarconian. I would actually, I'd say, you know, you can keep your Zarconian. Let's okay. just get married. <laughs> okay. I don't need anything. In fact, I don't even right? need the marriage not, either. <laughs> Yeah, I don't even need a marriage. Throw it out the window. I commit to you every day, you know. Let's go back to your questions. You have more questions. Yeah, I do have more questions. So, okay, so you kind of told me a little bit about how much cooking you really do abroad, which is not so much. Are there any countries in which you took time out to do some some cooking for any reason? I'm just curious. Not really. Um, No? It's not that I... I'm against cooking, but I always find that I'm surrounded by people who like cooking more, I guess. I don't know what Ah. it is. It's, it's not always, but in general. And I'm, when I travel, I really, like I mentioned at the very beginning of the podcast is that I really like to get involved in the cultural aspects of it. And I do include Mm -hmm. food in that, but cooking itself, I'd rather let the masters take over because I just feel incompetent mm. behind the, in the kitchen. <laughs> I just, not that I'm absolutely incompetent. I do know how to boil water. I'm that good. Good. That's but, a good skill. <laughs> but aside from that, um, I'm not terribly good, but I imagine you have taken, have you ever gone on like a retreat or certain things like that where I'm sure? Yeah. I mean, the culinary experiences, I, I studied with Sandra Lotti in, uh, in Italy, kind of in Stiva, uh, close to Pisa. 
And then I studied with Elena Matai. So it's not not really a retreat, but like a form of schooling. Mm. And, uh, you know, with a group of people, intensive studies of pasta and, and you know, some favorite Italian ingredients like mm. balsamic vinegar and Amadei chocolate and things like that. So just immersion studies in food with a lot of, I guess, tourist appeal too. <laughs> so yeah, I've done that. And then I usually try when I'm traveling to visit a farmer's market or do some cooking with friends um, to try out local ingredients. So even like in a, a wedding that I had to go to in Oahu, there was just like three of us who were really interested in going to the farmer's market there. And there's a lot you can learn about culture when you see what they're offering. You know, getting a fresh macadamia nut, it just blew my mind, Francis. I can't even imagine the level of flavor. What you get in the grocery store after it's been processed just doesn't even compare to a macadamia nut that you crack on the spot in the high season that hasn't been stored for a long period of time. So I think there's just a knowledge of the terroir of the place that comes from those kinds of experiences that I've always loved. Even my experience in moving to to Port Townsend, it was because we came and we enjoyed everything about the place. But then when we went to the farmer's market and tasted the food and the beets and the oysters and things like that, we're like, oh yeah, this is where we belong. Mm. We belong here. Right, because this is this is like paradise in terms of the quality and flavor of food, and I don't really want that many people to know that because we we like it here. We like. Well, it we haven't told smaller. anybody where Port Townsend is, so most people yeah, don't even right. know where that is. <laughs> yeah, maybe not. No, I think enough people are finding it anyway. <laughs> but what about farmers markets that? There have been articles written, plenty of articles written. In fact, I can send them to you if you're not aware of them. That say that certain vendors at farmers markets are not quote unquote legitimate in the sense that they'll do things like buy food at grocery stores and just bring them over there. Mm. Or they're, they're not local. They're not local. All sorts of basically mm. quote unquote scams. If you just Google far, farmer's market, yeah. either scam and that kind of stuff. And so how mm. do you distinguish? Do you ever worry about that? Think about that when you go around? And I, I, I don't hear um, mainly because I, I was a board member for the Jefferson County farmer's market previously and um, there are standards in place, like policies as to who can be a vendor and the, you know, there's even like a scoring matrix uh, on those things. And we do, in this area, we have typically required people to, you know, disclose how they're making their products in the sense that are, are there incorporated products from other people? Are you making it yourself? Or are you just repackaging somebody else's product? Okay. So do I you think, think that most people have those kind of oversight as you have most farmers think, markets? Maybe not. I, I think farmers markets are kind of in a revival of sorts, for particularly sure. post pandemic mm-hmm. when the supply chain got disrupted uh, for meat products, even uh, more people were turning to their local uh, farmers markets to, to obtain them. And, you know, there's often a premium paid in the local farmers market for meat and poultry products because of what it takes to to raise them and care for them. And I think those are legitimate things that we should be supporting to support agrarian um, economies. And I, I think that if we can avoid having that, I guess, you know, fraud in the farmer's market, that's, that's really important. And it would be nice if across the country people were, you know, instituting these kinds of standards around how they accept market vendor applications 
I haven't seen that really in in the markets that I've shopped. So I've shopped the markets in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, Port Washington, Wisconsin, you know, smaller places, Madison, Wisconsin. Madison, Wisconsin has like a beautiful farmer's market. I couldn't tell you if, you know, that that is at such a large scale, Madison, Wisconsin, um, and even Union Square Market in uh, Manhattan. Those are at such large scales. But when you walk, when you walk it, you can see the produce, generally speaking, you'll know that that's from a farm. Like you'll see the dirt still on some of it. You can see the dirt under the fingers of the vendor. But when it comes to the prepared products, it's a little bit harder to tell. So that's really about the due diligence of the people who are monitoring the applications. And, you know, I, I think people want to know the traceability of their food more and more so. But more people need to be educated about that as being a positive thing um, that you would want to know. You know, when we have these crisis crises of consumption where you have spinach having E. coli and moving around the country and not knowing exactly how it happened until, you know, the research and investigation is done post-mortem for some people, that that's when you realize traceability really matters, right? We need to know where it came from in order to stop the, the problem. So I think farmer's markets for me feel like a really holistic way of getting great fresh food that, you know, in terms of quality, usually does better than the stuff you get in the grocery stores. Fair enough. All right. Shoot. Next question. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so tell me, yeah, I'm curious about this because you have such a rich history. Your mother was Chilean, is that right? Yes. And your father was French. Correct. I'm wondering how that showed up at the dinner table and whether you have, you know, food and memory entangled together from from some of your experiences in the home. You know, it's an interesting question. Um, my mom, she cooked all the time. My dad never cooked. And so whatever culinary influence came from Chile, I remember my, asking my mom at the age of 22, like, why haven't you never given me peanut butter? And she said, because I didn't like it. <laughs> I discovered peanut butter at Amherst <laughs> College. And she was just wow. like, I just didn't like it. So that I'm not going to serve you something I don't like. And so I never wow. discovered peanut butter until I was like 20. And wow. uh, so her cuisine was a smorgasbord. What was interesting to see, I guess, is that over time, my mom became more and more vegetarian. She she let up more and more on the salt because I think my dad had a high blood pressure or something like that. So uh-huh. he had to reduce the, the the amount of salt that she put in. And she became more and more vegetarian. The, the portions of meat and everything and, and, and animal products became less and less over time. And so that was the evolution. What about you? For me, yeah, food is definitely entangled with memory. I, I grew up mostly with Filipino and American cuisine, mm. what my parents understood of American cuisine, which ended up being kind of distorted at times. You know, like it's a strange thing. What, you put that, like pineapple on your pizza? No, I, I, I don't do that, <laughs> but my, the rest of my family will. Um, no, it showed up in distortions where products were misunderstood or not understood, right? So, so like we were able to convince my parents, for example, that Twinkies were a breakfast food because they really didn't understand what they were. Right. And so we went through a stretch probably like in the first, first to second grade where we were like, yeah, you know, you allow you know, in the Philippines, sometimes people have cake for breakfast, but mm. when they're having cake for breakfast, it's made out of ube, which is like a root vegetable, you know? <laughs> so it's a different kind of right. cake. Right, um, right. And, or babinka, which, you know, has coconut milk and some other things and it's high, cal- you know, a high caloric food, but you're going to burn you it off. Can you buy a Twinkie anymore? 
I think you can. I've, I know I've seen the Hostess cupcakes, right, okay. which was a close second yeah, to the yeah. Twinkie. Yeah. But so so things like that got distorted. But you know, a, a, a traditional thing that we would eat would be a chicken adobo, which you know you're seeing that image kind of float around on Instagram, and people have given their different takes on it with uh, people wanting to cook more Asian dishes in a time in response to some of the anti-Asian violence. But I would say that. For me, the Filipino tradition of gathering and eating food together is one of the most fabulous traditions because time is given for storytelling and for um, catching up with people whom you might not have seen, whether it's for several weeks or a month or whatnot. And there's so much joy in it, uh, so much joy in the eating, so much, you know, lingering, lingering that happens. And I I would say that I, I sort of miss that aspect of um, sharing food. I think, you know, the pandemic has made it difficult to gather. And then, you know, as a society, we've gotten so trapped by the scheduling of things that carving out big chunks of time to have those kind of larger gatherings and, um, you know, just to simply talk and eat. Like most of the time these days, People are talking, eating, working, and texting all at the same time. Yep. And so the latter two take away from the other two. And and to me, that's, you know, that's sort of a loss on our part. I think there's something about culture and, you know, the social fabric of, of American society that we're missing out on. The faster our food systems get, you know, the, the more we demand immediacy and you know, spontaneous fulfillment of our food needs, the, the less we're kind of appreciating and taking things slow. I think it's one of the reasons why when slow food became a thing, you know, there were people who were ready to take that on and make that part of how they want to exist in the world. Right. So, and, and for people who don't know slow food, it's it's really an organization that was started by um, a man named Petrini uh, close to uh, Torino. And, it was in response to fast food, right. right? Hitting Italy and and trying to kind of stave off that taking over the culture because they'd seen what it had done yeah. in the U.S. Yeah. So so taking you know a slow approach, I think, is something that I'm in favor of. And and when I think of my memories, like I don't have a lot of fast food memories. The only thing that I will say, you know, in contradiction to that is sports games, being a cheerleader as a, a grade school student, we used to go out for, you know, fast food afterwards. And that was kind of fun. And that's an immediate thing that you can do with people. So there's a place for all of it. You know, there's a, definitely a place for all of it. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's definitely one thing that separates American culture from a lot of other cultures, although we are infecting the rest of the world, is that in most of other mm-hmm. cultures in the world, food is a family affair and certain, or social mm-hmm. affair versus Americans are probably the least social social eaters, <laughs> if you will. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, mm-hmm. but I'm glad there's a slow food movement to kind of counteract that. Next question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, oh, here. You know what? What has made you resilient through the pandemic and the lockdown when travel was restricted? I'm just curious about that. Just generally, I know it's like a non sequitur, but I just think there's so much of what you talk about in terms of. Uh, transformation and travel and in your TEDx talks, you know, there's a lot of education you're offering to people um, who are ready to hear it and to think differently about their travels. And I feel like you're opening people's eyes 
to what can be learned in these moments of connection with other people. And I can imagine that in the pandemic, you know, there was just less connection possible, right? Less travel possible. And and I just want to know, you've always struck me as somebody who's highly resilient and highly extroverting. So what did you do for yourself? I mean, you know, did you do different kinds of hiking or what did you do? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so just like you, Rafina, I'm an extrovert and mm-hmm. I find that it's actually social media, one of the blessings, I suppose, of it is that it is a good substitute, uh, not, maybe not a good substitute, but it's certainly a substitute for real life interaction. If you think about it, mm-hmm. imagine how it would be in the 1920 epidemic where the Spanish flu broke out and then you really had to isolate and you really, mm-hmm. you know, like, it was so different. Here, at least, yeah. you can have a, you and I are right now talking and we're nowhere near each other. Yeah. I mean, and right. yet it yeah. feels like we're there. And so it's so much easier to isolate yourself. I mean, because in the sense that you always have, I, I realize Zoom is not the same. I understand that, but mm-hmm. it it's a lot easier. And, and also just social media. There's a lot of people that on Facebook, I feel like I'm following their life, even though we're not, we haven't seen yeah. each other for 20 years. I, you know, we're, uh-huh. I comment on their stuff. They comment on my stuff, whatever. There's a certain level of interaction. So, and also in my case, during the pandemic, I had to write my book about Africa. So traveling to all 54 African countries. And so I needed a, a bit of isolation anyway. And so in that sense, it was good for me. I just wish it would have, I would have had more time. How about you? How, how did you deal with the pandemic? Was it really rough? Um, You know, initially it was actually quite a blessing to have more time with my family sure. in lockdown together. Yeah, yeah. So so I would say that I was able to give more time and attention, particularly to my son. Right. And what was interesting to me, like I, I was invited to join a particular artist group um, locally, which has, you know, a handful of professional artist women. And I had not given myself the space or the time to to do art uh, for such a long time. And it, it made such a difference because, you know, I consider myself, I only recently had words for it um, that I, I gained through a, a woman who was a, a culinary professional, part of the IACP. She called herself a multi-creative. And I thought, ah, oh, there it is. That's the word that I've needed because I enjoy doing different creative things but I had been um, spending a lot of my time working using, you know, strategy and intellect and and logic, right, um, having practiced law. So um, giving myself that time to create balance in my life um, and, and do some artwork, that was really great. Like, I, I don't know if I can show you, like, you know, that drawing behind me is one that I did back in law school, you know, and that one too, I think I did in law school. And some of the things, <laughs> it's kind of strange to show you, but I, I started doing um, some paintings based off of poetry and learning to kind of grapple with some of our societal challenges around opening up this Pandora's box of examining racism and looking at belonging mm-hmm. at a deep level, creating the space for doing that as well. That was such a opening as opposed to a restriction that the process of creating art became a mode of resilience and the ability to spend more time cooking for each other at home also offered like this refuge almost, uh, a return to actively cooking and creating. That, that to me was such a blessing. And there were so many things that were difficult about it, you know, knowing that so many people were suffering 
in the pandemic um, became something that like, I, I felt a need to do something about. So I joined a group of people meeting by Zoom and we served as the, the county's um, food system resiliency task force, whereby we, we kind of made recommendations to the county commission around how to use money that came in from the Federal CARES Act. And so at the time I was serving as a board member for the farmer's market and we knew we had this SNAP match program that could basically give dollars for spending at the farmer's market. So in in two ways, it really helped people. One, it helped people who needed more funds to buy food, uh, you know, because we had widespread layoffs. And then um, it helped the farmers, right, sustain their livelihoods because it was a crippling effect for many of them with, you know, the lack of people attending the farmer's markets. Like we really had just like such a big decrease in the number of people attending until we got our rhythm around how to distance appropriately and set up the sort of public health standards of operation. So so the resilience came out of serving other people in in ways that were meaningful to me and aligned with my values. Fair enough. No, it's great that you got that experience during the pandemic. Give me another question. Do you want to... Yeah, well, how about, do you want to talk about um, the things that you wanted to talk about from the forum podcast? Yeah, I do. Um, So so if we can, if we have the social engineering, not the social, the technology, Uh technological engineering, we're going to play a short clip right now of the forum podcast on KQED. And this is what a woman said about, anyway, just listen. Uh, You know, the industry, the restaurant industry prior to the pandemic was, the nation's largest, one of the largest, second largest, in fact, and absolute fastest growing private sector employers, nearly 14 million workers prior to the pandemic. But it's been the absolute lowest paying employer for generations, actually, since emancipation of slavery, when the whole structure of wages and tipping in this country was birthed at at emancipation. It's a direct legacy of slavery, the low wages in this industry and the way in which tips have replaced wages. And so to me, the more the more that I've worked on this issue for the last 20 years, the more I learn, the more uh, we organize, the, the more we understand that really this industry is the epitome of, frankly, racialized capitalism in the United States. The, le- the legacy of slavery that exists in the way that wages in our economy are structured, frankly, unfortunately, the ways in which corporations control our democracy and the way people are paid and treated. Um, It's a very gendered issue, given that the vast majority of tipped workers in the U.S. are women. It's a very racialized issue, not just because of the legacy of slavery, but the way in which, unfortunately, tips reflect our biases as Americans. And so to me, it is uh, the epitome of what is really at the root of the structural problems we need to address in this country, the intersections of race, capitalism, and gender that have resulted in severe inequities that that are resulting in right now as we emerge from this pandemic, frankly, our inability to fully recover. We are not going to see the restaurant industry that we had prior to the pandemic come back. Um, in the way it was, unless we address these issues. Because frankly, in this moment, workers are not willing to go back to the industry that was there before. Okay. And now just kind of summarizing what she said, she talked about how the, the food industry is in for a reckoning. What do you yeah. think about what she said, Rufina? Yeah. 
I think she's right about the reckoning having to happen, right? To sort of bring ourselves back into alignment because we're, we're recognizing, um, you know, after the pandemic, how stretched thinly the industry is and how incapacitated restaurants and the food industry are to meet the needs for a sustainable livelihood with healthcare to to provide to their workers. And I think that she's right. We are going to experience a shrinkage. We're going to experience a shrinkage for a couple different reasons. The pandemic really made it difficult for some restaurants. Like the the margins are so thin in that industry, right? Especially like in in um the state of Washington, the minimum wage wage went up. And once that happened, right, things shifted in the business models of many restaurants. And so coming into the pandemic, people were trying to make that pivot in the first place to absorb the costs of that increase in personnel wages. And then when the pandemic hit, right, the cost of operation to pivot with all the different needs and with the lower number of headcount in the restaurants, it it became crippling to some restaurants. And so without like the federal monies to kind of you know, kind of subsidize this time period, it really put a lot of, you know, people in jeopardy in that industry. So we're going to see shrinkage no matter what. And the expectation that she talks about to expect less restaurants because they're because of the need to kind of give greater quality to, you know, what's provided to the essential workers. I think that's possible, but I think where she's a little bit mistaken is in thinking that it's going to be like this grassroots effort. And maybe I misunderstood that from the podcast, but the way she was talking, I sort of felt like she was thinking, you know, there'll there'll be this like proletarian uprising from the ranks of line cooks and prep cooks. It's just not going to happen because as people are vaccinated, the people on the line have to live their lives. And it's, it's kind of triage, right? Paycheck to paycheck. It, for a lot of people, without healthcare in most cases, and you know that 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 whole cycle, right? It's not a virtuous cycle. Like if people are really essential, why don't we treat them that way? So you know, it's really important for people in government and in politics, people with law degrees, um, legislators, all these people, to focus on the problem together. Even the farmers, like we can create a virtuous cycle. We, we can actually create a system that works for everybody, but we have to want to do it. And to be honest, I just don't think there's enough uh, power in listening. Like the people who have the decision-making authority, who can create the right kinds of laws to support the health and well-being and, and the sustainability of the livelihood of an essential worker, they, they have to be the ones to be advocating too. Because right now, like if I just think about the practicality of it, you know, when I when I go into a restaurant, like I enjoy getting to know the server. I enjoy, like I believe in tipping, right? I believe in these kinds of things. Um, and not everybody does. People are transactional. People are, uh, you know, they want what they want when they want it. And they don't necessarily see see the importance of the connection with the person who's who's doing the service, who's in the back of the house. Mm. And and for me, like that's a miss. Like that's a miss in the wholeness of the system. And I think the more people can see what they've seen in the pandemic, like how hard this industry works, how difficult it was to pivot in the pandemic, and how they made it happen, right? Like that's an expression 
in in most kitchens, like make it happen, right? Whatever we need to have go out, we're going to get it out. We're going to get it out on time, barring, you know, uncertain circumstances. But like you really saw people rise to the occasion and go beyond what would be necessary and and to almost take like a, a military format to like the need to feed people. And yes, I hope that people like her begin to recognize the importance of addressing this problem. I don't think anybody would have done anything about it before the pandemic because people were comfortable. It's only in the pandemic that people began to feel uncomfortable, especially the people who forgot how to cook for themselves, mm-hmm. right? Like the fewer restaurants were open to them. Like they couldn't get the variety of things they wanted. They had supply chain problems. So I, I hope that the discomfort of that moment has not passed for people so that enough focus can be given to that. But at the government level, I would say I was really ticked off, you know, when they set up the restaurant council, right? Like Wolfgang Puck and, uh, you know, uh, French Law Laundry's Thomas Keller called up the president and said, we want to have a talk with you, right? There's a problem in the industry. When they set up this restaurant council, largely it was all male, right? I think towards the, you know, the last iteration of it, they added one female, they added one person of color, they didn't add any Asians, which kind of <laughs> shocked me given how popular Chinese cuisine is. And because there are some leading thinkers out there. Um, David Chang of Momofuku, I think, has a lot of really good ideas. I think they should have added, I think his name is Nikolai from Alinea, who he's a master of finance and really helped Alinea pivot in the pandemic. And I think his model that they used there could Um, be replicated everywhere. And so I'm hoping to have him as a podcast guest at some point. But there are people thinking differently now about food and thinking about food and community and how one can create models that support everyone in the system. And it's not communist. You know, it's still about making, making profit, but it's about having a model that is designed and intended to support the health and longevity of both the industry and the people whom the industry serves. Mm-hmm. So that's a long and short of my my opinion. <laughs> Got it. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I also was kind of disputing. I, I'm glad that you didn't agree with everything that she said, because I also didn't see as the workers of the food necessarily being the worst off ever. Because I just think of my cousin who was a chef. He had, He created three restaurants. And eventually he decided to just be a server, you know, a waiter, because he was like, Uh I make more money serving. He he worked at the Mm -hmm. Ritz-Carlton, the Four Seasons or whatever the hell he did. Anyway, but he made more money as a server as he did as Mm -hmm. a chef. And and she also makes a point about, you know, the low wage. I think the minimum wage is maybe $3 an hour or whatever it is for, for, Mm -hmm. but of course they make money in tips. And so what really matters is your total take-home pay. And I just know mm-hmm. that waiters, yes, it's a very tough job. You're on your feet. It's mm-hmm. very customer service oriented. It's high stress on and on and on. But mm-hmm. it's definitely not the bottom of the barrel when it comes to money that you can make. I, I don't know how much janitors make in comparison or other mm-hmm. people, and maybe the people who are picking the the fruits off, you know, the, the oranges. I imagine they're making mm-hmm. a lot less. Anyway, yeah. waiters... There, there's a lot of people who are below waiters as far as total take-home mm-hmm. income. Not that mm-hmm. their waiters are getting yeah. super highly paid, but anyway. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, but and I guess she's talking about the whole food industry. Front of the house and back of the house. Yeah, right. yeah, she is. She's and just, and when you look at back of the house wages, you know they're they're you know not in my mind with the cost of healthcare. But here's the thing, um, and the absence of it, it's it's not sustainable. But Rafina, what she said is, you know, be prepared for if we don't make these reforms, if we don't like start paying food workers a lot more money and giving. I mean, that's basically comes down to what she's saying. If we don't do that, expect to see a lot fewer restaurants and a lot, you know, da, 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 da. Okay, but here's my my other contention is, okay, let's just say that we do adopt all her measures and we double the salaries of everybody out there and we double the compensation of everybody out there. Well, you're also going to see half the restaurants. The restaurants are going yes. to go away anyway because nobody's going to yeah. be able to afford to go out. <laughs> right, right. So, so yeah, it right. just seems or, like it's or doom or gloom either way. <laughs> It could be. It could be. Definitely. I, you know, I think there are different innovative ways to think about it. And and part of it, one of the, the bright spots of the pandemic is some restaurants really thrived and they made more money than they normally made because they weren't, it was all takeout. And so then you increase the number of customers you serve in the amount of time that you have right. with the same set of personnel. Right. So when you're talking about business models, that aspect can kind of save certain restaurant operations. And and I think you'll see that some restaurants won't go back to having people linger quite as much. So I, I think you're going to see a different yeah. landscape of restaurants. The people who are really screwed are the four or five-star restaurants. Those guys are the ones who can't do like takeout. You can't like go to some yeah. super expensive place and say, hey, I want to do takeout. Well, I mean, well, you can, but it's- Alinea. I think Alinea is one of those um, restaurants that di- that did do but, something different. But I imagine that. that they're just not raking in the money as they used to. I'm guessing. Maybe yeah, I'm I won't know until I talk to Nicolas. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. I don't know. Because I mean, to I me, the, the experience of you know spending five hundred dollars on a meal is is the whole ambiance getting served by seventeen waiters and, mm-hmm. and you know just the whole you know theatrical nature yeah. of the experience yeah. and the presentation That's true. and then giving them, you know, into a Tupperware container and giving it to you on, you know, by delivery boy on a bicycle doesn't have the same level, even if it could be the exact same thing. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, right? I think one of the most heartwarming things I saw in the pandemic was people recognizing that support of the industry, support of local restaurants, for example, was a priority. It was right. a value in That's the community. Yeah. And and so the entanglement of memory with food is that, you know, people remembered like their great experiences that were given to them like a gift from these restaurants. And they remembered that in order for that restaurant to survive, they would still need to be a patron in that time frame of crisis. And so I think people did buy as much as they could from the normal places that they used to frequent. And I, you know, I, I have to say, like, I really appreciated that about the community um, so that you can still have the, the options once everybody's vaccinated and things open up fully again. And we're almost, you know, nearing that point here. So. And I'm nearing the last question that I'm going to ask you. I'm, maybe okay. you have more for me, but it's, it's a tough question that we kind of touched on before, talked about this mm-hmm. before, but what would have to happen for you to then become a vegetarian or a vegan? You said that you oh. you see it in your destiny at some point. Yeah. But why is it in the future and not in the present? And what would have to happen for it to become your present? 
Yeah. Because I think a lot um, of people, by the way, agree with you. Yeah. A lot of people I yeah. talk to say, yeah. I would love to be vegetarian. I just can't. I just can't. You know, and, yeah. and, and, and they postpone it. It's always in the future. So a lot of people listening to this are probably thinking the same thing like you. They're like, yeah, I want to do that. I want to eat less meat, but I just, it just tastes so good. <laughs> well, you know, I, so I think one of the things that I've learned is that I can make almost anything taste good, you know? So, and I have the skill set. like when I was cooking for some of those um, retreats, I was cooking vegan and I loved the food I was eating and I knew my body felt healthier mm. eating it. I, I think I told you previously, my sinuses cleared up. I didn't have any allergy problems and I could smell things like so much further away than before. And, um, so it just felt better in the body. And, and like, that's like an intelligence you gain from, from doing it. I think the thing that would have to happen is my son would have to go off to college. Right? And I would then just cook what I wanted to eat. And my, my partner, I think too, feels like he could easily go vegetarian and, and we're incrementally increasing our vegetarian um, dishes on a weekly basis, largely kind of consuming more Indian foods that are super flavorful. Mm. And, you know, that, so, so I think we're experimenting with different uh, cuisines where we can do that. I have a few friends who are both vegan and vegetarian. And I think as I help them kind of, you know, learn how to feed themselves better, because one of the things I found is many vegetarians who've been friends of mine have struggled with how to feed themselves enough of what they would enjoy eating and, and that their repertoire for cooking is, is limited. And I find that if I'm teaching people to cook something, then I'm probably also going to eat it myself at home. So I imagine that I'll probably over time offer some, you know, classes or something to, to help with, with people learning those kinds of things. Again, I, I miss teaching um, and it's sort of a creative side project that I'm, I'm hoping to do mm-hmm. in the fall. Okay. Interesting. One of the things that I think about is something that, do you know Steven Pinker? No. Okay. Steven Pinker wrote many books and one of his latest ones, Enlightenment Now. And in it, he shows how humanity has evolved in its moral code over the centuries. And so that oftentimes when we look back a few centuries, no matter what time period we are, we see the previous few centuries as being barbaric in whatever ways. So mm-hmm. for example, uh, we would burn and torture uh, cats. We would, mm-hmm. in the Middle Ages, we had torture devices in, in mm-hmm. there. In the biblical times, we stoned people who were adulterers. Mm-hmm. We killed homosexuals. We, uh, we allowed polygamy. We... Uh, all uh, the way we treated women, the way we treated different races, and slavery, you know, slavery, of course. And mm-hmm. so we look back at all these previous generations and we look at them as barbaric. And so mm-hmm. it's logical to assume that in the 23rd or 24th century, people are going to look at us in the 21st century mm-hmm. as being barbaric in some yeah. form. Sure. I, I can't imagine why they wouldn't. And so then Steven mm-hmm. Pinker asked the question, what would that be? And he answered it as saying the fact that we eat and kill live animals, you know, Mm. living animals. And that Mm -hmm. will be Mm -hmm. the thing that the 24th or 25th century people, or maybe even the 22nd century people will look Mm -hmm. at us and say, how could my grandparents have done that? Just in the same way that we Mm -hmm. look at how could our grandparents have supported the Jim Crow laws 
or slavery mm-hmm. or the way we treated homosexuals or on and on the women and all blah, 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 mm-hmm. blah, blah. And, and mm-hmm. so I am, and I think it's because we, the factory farming techniques is so hidden from us and is something that is mm-hmm. not talked about. It's not shown on the news. It's really, you can find it if you go on YouTube and you sure. start searching for mm-hmm. it. But it's just mm-hmm. not talked about. And even I remember, sorry, I'm talking too long, but there's one point yeah. where my Buddhist, Buddhism teacher, she, you know, Buddhists are usually vegetarian, but she said she couldn't, she looked at the meat and she just couldn't think of a cow when she saw it because it's yeah. just this nice little square rectangle piece and it just mm-hmm. tastes delicious. And it's so mm-hmm. separated from it being a cow. And so we've, mm-hmm. and then same, it goes all the way back to the beginning of our conversation when you had to eat the, oh, you didn't have to, but you decide to eat the eye of a fish. Mm-hmm. And in the United States, yeah. so often we don't have the head of the fish because it's mm-hmm. offensive to so many people. It's mm-hmm. it's horrible. Uh, mm-hmm. And so that's my two cents. I think that despite what you say that, you know, you don't want to eat lab grown meat, but I think eventually, probably because it's going to become so prohibitively expensive to have farm animals compared to maybe the cost of production of lab-grown meat or vegan meat, you know, vegetarian meat, plant-based meat, is going to become competitive enough. I'm talking about in 100 years. Mm. Because land, because you need so much land to grow a cow and mm-hmm. and the factory farm stuff. And so I think eventually it's going to be so competitive that eventually people, if they want real, you know, they want a real burger, they're just going to, it's going to be cheaper to buy a lab-grown burger potentially. And mm. then eventually the whole society will just fade out this whole domestication of animals and livestock. And eventually it's just going to be as popular as riding a horse is today. And in other words, very few people are making horseshoes. It's just going to be an antiquated practice that very few people actually do. And then they'll self-righteously look back. And last thing I'll say Mm. is this. I remember during the George Floyd protests and there was a lot of people Mm. going and taking down uh, statues of people Mm. because- they once owned slaves or they somehow support mm-hmm. slavery or support segregation or blah, 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 blah. And I said, beware of what you guys are doing because you're, you're using 21st century morals on 20th century or 19th century or 18th century people. Mm-hmm. One day, the 22nd century people or the 23rd century people are going to take down all of our statues because all the people on statues were all mediators. And eight animals. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, you know, your I, I think more power to them. Like, like, go for it, right? <laughs> like, there's no reason not to. If that's if if enlightenment happens, mm-hmm. then why not take down the vestiges of of representation that that doesn't speak to the values of the time? Mm-hmm. You know, I think, yeah, because because in some ways, like that would that would assume that you know, in the future, people would feel that these representations of anybody would kind of create that trauma. Like if if we all of a sudden begin to understand that every animal is sentient, Mm. right? Like we have a cat, we call him RV Kitty, but his name is Jackson Pollock. And he came to us through um, the Humane Society. And this cat is truly a family member to us. And, and, you know, we really think this cat is sentient because we don't understand how he un- seems to understand English, right? right. Like he can communicate with this cat. And he is the one who tells us that maybe we're wrong 
about not recognizing the sentient nature of all animals, mm. right? Because if it can, if we can feel this way about a cat, if we bothered to spend the time with any other animal, maybe we'd feel that way about those other animals. Right. So that, I guess that's also one of the reasons why I think over time we'll probably be vegans or <laughs> vegetarians. You know, my partner has said to me, what if we learn that plants are also similar this way? Right, <laughs> right. We just don't know how to read it, right? Yeah. Like. My my son watches these different nature science programs, and we, you know, it blew my mind when I realized there was the, there's this chemical signaling, yep. um, you know, a phosphorescence that is unseen to our eyes, where butterflies can navigate their way like a runway onto a plant, and there's just so little we really truly understand oh, yeah. with our naked eyes. And that's and that's why that's why I don't get too self righteous with this thing at all, because I yeah. kill mosquitoes all the time, right? And and sure. like. Why is that killing a mosquito any better than killing a leopard? I mean, it's just like, yeah. and, and, and same thing with plants. Again, I don't get very self-righteous and moralistic about it because, mm-hmm. you know, th- like you said, there's evidence that through the roots, plants could be communicating mm-hmm. in a certain way. And, yeah. you know, so it's, I, I'm, I don't pretend to, and, and, and like I said at the very beginning, I eat meat often when I travel or mm-hmm. animals mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Um, yeah. So... And I just don't want anybody yeah. to misunderstand what I'm trying to say. Like there's some people who I think are vegan or vegetarian and they are so self-righteous and judgmental against other people, you know, barely looking down on everybody else. And mm-hmm. I think that is the wrong way to try to communicate the message that they yeah. want to communicate. Yeah. I think it's nice to give people space to evolve right. and to, to learn their own relationship. Uh, you know, when you talked about, for me, when you talk about lab meat, being part of the future um, in that stronghold way for a culture. What does that mean, stronghold way? Like that it is the norm, that that's all we're eating. And that if you were to try and get like a regular hamburger that we know today from livestock, right, instead of from a lab, that that would be the most costly form of hamburger that you could find. That's a hypothesis. I don't know if that's true. Yeah, right. It's a hypothesis. It's a potential, you know, outcome of the popularity of lab-grown meats, right. right? It's a potential right. futurist view of right. a market sort of succeeding. I would say that it's mistaken in that we forget that the livestock are are part of how we steward the land. Mm, I understand. So when, when a cattle farmer like Will Harris does regenerative farming, he's, you know, rotating them through paddocks. Right. And the waste matter of those cows is feeding the soil. Mm-hmm. And the idea, and I guess this is part of the holistic nature of the health of an ecosystem. If all of a sudden, like, like we have too much production of, of cattle, we're eating more meat than we need to eat in this country for sure. Mm-hmm. If you're going to eat meat, I would, I would, rec- you know, I would definitely endorse eating meat that you're going to find from from white oak pastures, regenerative farmers, people who are committed to permaculture or anything like that, because they're considering the whole environmental system. And if, for example, you were to convert all of the cattle farms into laboratories creating these meat, like let's just follow the dystopian view, okay? I wouldn't okay. call it dystopia because for me it's dystopia. If you were to follow that line of thinking, you, you would end up not stewarding the land anymore, and you would have more commerce, more laboratories, more people working technology jobs. Uh, and you wouldn't have people working in the dirt, getting the probiotics from working in the dirt, working the land. I think you'd see an overall decrease in health. 
Okay. You know, I'd rather see more people. I, like one of the questions I usually ask of people who are guests on the podcast is what would you like to contribute in to a curriculum in schools, a re-envisioning of home economics that would really help people understand how, how one could relate differently and better to people from other cultures or people within our own culture or to the environment. Like, how would we have holistic health through that? How would we have greater empathy? And, you know, for me, I think I would say putting people out onto land, right, to work the day of a farmer, to work the day of a cattle rancher, to get their hands dirty again, right, to experience what that feels like, to know in their bones what it means to take care of the land, to take care of animals. Like, I think that would be a great way to to have people have a different relationship to their food. I think it'd also be good and to, each other. to do what I often saw and did in Africa is to see an animal slaughtered right before your eyes. Mm-hmm. It's it's something, yeah. you know, when they take the knife, they, the Muslims have mm-hmm. a certain way to cut the throat open and mm-hmm. you can hear the, oh, yeah. <laughs> of, the of the animal as it's breathing yeah. its last breath and you see the blood gushing out of their, their neck. Mm-hmm. You know, I think seeing that for yourself. And I, once mm-hmm. when I was in Guinea-Bissau, they, they slaughtered a cow right in the middle of the street. I mean, it was a live cow oh, wow. walking around all of a sudden they just started wow. killing it. And uh, doing that and seeing that, I think, which is kind of Africans see this stuff often. And it's so they're mm-hmm. completely in tune and they're not so mm-hmm. disconnected from their food. Mm-hmm. And one more thing that the Africans taught me is to love to eat crickets. Oh, yeah, I wanted to talk about that with you. Yeah, it's so delicious. The way they, in Niger, which is Uh just above Nigeria, it's, they they spiced it up and they they fry them Mm. up in a certain way. Mm -hmm. And they're crunchy, Mm -hmm. like eating potato chips. And they've got this perfectly spiced with salt and all sorts of other spices Uh to add this flavor. And you're eating the exoskeleton of the cricket. And you, in some ways you would think it's gross, but it's not gross at all. At least to me, Uh I mean, you put... You know, so I think too many people think about what they're actually eating as far as, but if you just focus on the taste, you close your eyes and you're just crunching and Mm -hmm. just, it's really tasty and it's packed with protein, much more easily sustainable protein than a cow. So, I mean, you can have a trillion uh, crickets for probably the the same amount of resources that a thousand cows take. So I don't know the numbers, but I do know that insects protein is a lot less costly on the environment than animal mm-hmm. than uh, yeah. what's called cow protein. Now, like as a, as a person looking into the future, I would much rather see that take off than the lab grown meat. Okay. <laughs> I've been listening to, to somebody who speaks yeah. on Clubhouse, who very much is an advocate for promoting like the commercialization of crickets insects. and insects yeah. as an alternative yeah. source of protein. And I think there's going to be a lot of merit to that. And as somebody from, you know, this culinary background, I would be open to learning that. Like, I remember when I was teaching, I had a, a student who was of Thai descent, and he brought in a package of some form of bugs sold in the grocery store that his mom shopped at. And I said, do you know how to cook it? Because I kind of wanted to try it. Like he just, it was, he brought it in more for show and tell. I, I don't know that he knew how to cook it. And and he he didn't, he wasn't ready to cook it so that we could try it. And I thought, well, you know, maybe I'm not ready yet mm. to eat that. But I think now, you know, where I've evolved to, I would be ready to try that because I do think there's certain things about sustainability where we have to have more openness to trying these things that have been part of 
cultures in other countries and and that it's you know hubris that prevents us from thinking that another culture's food could become a staple in in our culture so well the other so thing I'm is hopeful but the american palate is one of the most flexible palates out there. I mean, we've accepted food from all over the place. I mean, we're mongrel. We just, we've, we've taken in food. So what's one more? In other words, we've yeah. accepted Asian cuisine, European cuisine. It's uh-huh. African cuisine, not so much, a little bit Ethiopian as we talked about. But yeah, uh-huh. I mean, I, so I think it's totally within the possibility for us to sure. take in insignia. We, we have the attitude versus, let's say Italy, where you walk around Italy, it's hard to find a restaurant that's not Italian. To, uh-huh, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, there's, it's all Italian food everywhere in Italy. So I think yeah. they're going to be one of the last to adopt insects mm. on their plate. It's possible. But I think the United States, yeah. uh, they're a, a mm-hmm. more open society, culinary, culinarily speaking, yeah. than others. Yeah, I so right I, think, I think we've got a chance to do it, but we just need some evangelists to do it. And so yeah. uh, I'm going to start looking for some. <laughs> Okay, let me know what you find and what you like okay. and where you got it. Because um, I'm I'm open. I'm definitely open on that. Cool. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask bef- before we kind of close up is one of the things I heard in the, in the podcast from you and, and knowing that you're, uh, you know, studying Buddhism, the, the aspect of travel that comes out, uh, you know, that surprised me was this non-attachment piece right? Like you talked about being 48 before you had your own bed and not being attached to the things. And and I think, you know, the experience of hiking for, for me, which I imagine might be true for you and tell me if I'm wrong, is that you're really present in that moment of hiking. And so talk to me a little bit about how that fits in, because, you know, I think in the in the way that I'm approaching food, Taoism also has a similar non-attachment Life is meant to be about joy. So there's like one distinction, like this, the suffering aspect of things, the recognition of suffering is, is different in, in Taoism. But, but tell me, like, what does that mean for you? Like the non-attachment, how is it central to what you're really exploring in this university of traveling? Good question. Yeah, I definitely am not attached to almost anything. And I've been criticized for that sometimes for not caring too much about pretty much anything. I, I'm not, it is very Taoist for sure. And I suppose it's a blessing and a curse. Uh, sometimes if you're like, hey, where do you want to eat? I don't care. I'm happy with anything. And like, Why can't you ever feel something about something? <laughs> Why can't you ever have a preference? <laughs> um, you know, I'm like, well, I'm just and like if something burns down, it's like, okay, it's only money. It's whatever. You know, like it's mm-hmm. it's it's rare that something that I don't get attached to to many things. And I don't know if I think one thing is for sure that people ought to occasionally conduct an experiment to deprive themselves mm-hmm. of something they think of as essential. I'll give you an mm-hmm. example here in Texas that I'm currently at, there's a friend of mine who ran out of air conditioning, like their their air conditioner Mm -hmm. broke. And all of a sudden it was Mm -hmm. the the biggest crisis on the planet earth. And I was like, you know what? That's Mm -hmm. the everyday existence of Africans. You know, like not only that, but when I was in Africa, sometimes there was half the time I would get a power cut. And so I didn't even have Mm -hmm. a fan. She had a fan, this lady. So she had a big fan 
And I was like, you're doing great. (laughs) That's like a dream for many Africans to have a a fan. And so I just think that when you, and that's what I love backpacking is because you deprive yourself of all sorts of things. You deprive yourself Mm -hmm. of a proper bed, of a shower, of, you know, the Mm -hmm. food that you might want to cook and, and, and Mm -hmm. uh, internet and television and lights, electricity. I mean, on and on, it's just so much stuff that you're, you're taking away from yourself, but that allows you to then no longer be attached to all those things so tightly Mm -hmm. so that when you return to society, number one, gratitude takes over your life and you all of a sudden Mm -hmm. feel grateful for all those little things that, you know, wow, I've got all these things that are working. I turn on the faucet and hot water comes out. What a miracle. Mm -hmm. And I get, Mm -hmm. I marvel at such the simplest things in life. And so I think everybody has their limits. Even I do Mm -hmm. as, as, Mm -hmm. as austere as I can sometimes be. Even I have my limits of what I'm like, okay, that's enough for me. I I need a little bit more creature comforts. But whatever your personal limit is, I just encourage you to push as far as you can beyond the limits to learn to survive for a week or two or three or whatever, certain amount of time without something. And then that way you won't be so attached to it because if you ever lose it again in the future, you're like, okay, I've learned to live without it. And so I think it's a skill that helps you survive. And I'll end by quoting Confucius, who said, he who's attached to things will suffer much. Yeah. Yeah. I think that makes sense. And it's, it's so wonderful to hear about that sort of nexus of connection in the way that we have traveled such different journeys in life. And and yet we, we still kind of are meeting at the same crossroads of experience. And you know, I, I would say that in general, I, I, I don't know if there's anything else you want to share with listeners. But I don't want to cut you off from doing that. But I would say f- when it comes to the experience of food and travel and our connection to other people in that and understanding of culture, that this ability to detach even from expectations, right? Expectations of travel, expectations of food, expectations of experience even, right? That lead us to kind of be more present to the journey and exploration of it all. Like to me, that's one of the most wonderful things about being in a new place, being in a new country and experiencing what there is, right? you know, to to know and learn. Detaching also from your food preferences. You know, that's so many people, they'll they'll go to Europe and then they want to go to a McDonald's because they want to have something, you know, familiar as opposed to just like- trying something, you know, just depriving yourself of that and, Mm -hmm. you know, eating stuff that is out of the, out of the norm. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Is is there any parting advice that you want to give to food love listeners uh, about travel and good ways to do it? I I just, you know, I would just encourage people to, to subscribe and listen to Francis's podcast. It, It makes me more excited for travel, makes me remember all of the good experiences I've had and also makes me think about, you know, how to have adventure in smart ways. So, so, and I also would say, listen to his TEDx or watch his TEDx talks too. There's some interesting content there that I think can expand people's minds. Thank you so much. Yeah. So I did three TEDx talks and they're all viewable on uh, my website, which is francistapon.com slash TEDx. Yeah, and likewise, I, I I commend people to 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 check out your podcast, subscribe to it as well. Thanks. So we're both relatively new to podcasts, and I think yeah, my final advice is 
just push the envelope, you know, try mm-hmm. push your culinary palate, uh, be more adventurous, uh, try new things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just think too many people live a life that is not adventurous enough. And, mm-hmm. and I think too often, I think it was Helen Keller who said life is either a daring adventure or nothing. You know, in other words, you've got mm-hmm. to like go full, full throttle. Very few people. I think about my deathbed all the time. And very few people, you're going to think on your deathbed and say, thank God I never tried that piece of food or whatever. And you're like, no, you'll probably right. have regrets and saying, I should have tried more food mm-hmm. in my different life, in my life. And that would have been, mm-hmm. so that's my final advice. Rufina, how about you? Thank you. Thank you. Um, I, I think what I would say, you know, I guess to travel travelers, right? The people who are mm-hmm. listening to your podcast, I would say um, just keep being open to the opportunities around food and culture and ritual, because I think sometimes we can be surprised by how much one can learn about another human being sitting around a table and lingering. So I think that would be the thing is to slow it down and linger longer with the people you find in a particular place. Well said. And we have lingered. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, we have lingered beyond compare. But that was to be expected because because we used to linger often. (laughs) Right? It's been a long time. So I'm glad that our listeners have to bear with us (laughs) and bear witness to all we've learned. But thank you for being such a wonderful guest on Food Love, the space between terroir and the Tao of food. And thank you for being on WanderLearn. Learn.